I think each of us, no matter what it is that we sell, whether it be a product or a service, is taking our customers on a transformational journey. So they start in a, in a place where they might feel frustrated, you know, their house is disorganized, they're always losing their chargers, you know, like everything is kind of a mess. And maybe the transformational journey you're helping them to make is to have this totally smart home where they can just snap their fingers and wink twice and all of their, you know, appliances work. Um, but in order for them to do that, you really have to be the student of understanding what are those different steps they need to take? And then what are particular barriers that get in their way? Because in the bigger arc of this transformation that they're trying to make, sometimes you do have everything within your company in order to like solve all of those problems. Other times it can be that you just need to understand, you know, that maybe they're, they, they want to make the transformation, but they're, they're not really motivated. And so maybe they need like a really good, like motivational habit coach. They need to have James Clear come in, right. And like do a, do a great talk to them about atomic habits to like get them in the mindset, you know, in order to get ready to make the change. That's part of your intelligence when you understand the journey that they're on means that when you come to designing an offer, it's specifically designed in order just to like make it as easy as possible for them to make the journey or in some cases to take a particular step in the journey. Welcome to the Career Nation Show, where you learn the strategies and tools to own and drive your career. Find out more at careertiger.com. Pamela Slim is an author, a business coach, and an entrepreneur. Since 2005, Pam has advised thousands of entrepreneurs to scale their companies, as well as companies that serve the small business market, companies like Infusionsoft, Progressive Insurance, and Prezi. In 2016, Pam co-founded the K Main Street Learning Lab in Mesa, Arizona, along with her husband, Daryl. And this has become a really grassroots, community-based think tank for small business economic acceleration. Pam is best known for her book, Escape from Cubicle Nation, named Best Business, Best Small Business and Entrepreneur Book of the Year of 2009 from 800 CEO Reed, along with her amazing follow-up book, The Body of Work. Both were published by Penguin. Her next book, The Widest Net, will be published by McGraw-Hill in November 2021, coming up very soon. I'm so excited to welcome Pamela Slim. Pamela, welcome to the show. I am so happy to be here with you. I really am. <laughs> Pamela, this is, this is such a moment for us and such a milestone. On one hand, um, I've known you as a mentor for so many years, and thanks, uh, thanks to you, you wrote the, the prologue and you wrote the advanced praise for my book, Unlock. Um, I would love to sort of understand your journey. You've been an entrepreneur for over 25 years. Mm -hmm. You started the K community. You're writing bestsellers. You're running your business. What are, what are some of the markers in your journey that stand out as your pivotal moments? For me, what's, what's interesting now is I, I start now in college because my college degree was in uh, community development with a focus on non-formal education as a tool for social and economic change originally in Latin America. I lived in Mexico and Colombia in college. So I was always really fascinated by how change happens and in particular what happens in communities where there is a grassroots effort to really grow economic power from the inside. I've always been the grow from the ground kind of person and not so much you know, from up above um, <clears throat> philosophically. But in that work early in my career, I realized that that model of a lot of the traditional um, international development just didn't really feel right for me being this expatriate white woman from California living in other places and trying to direct what they were doing. So I really spent the early phases of my career finding training and development, the field of training and development. It had some of those components of really helping to build capacity of people. I developed this lifelong fascination, you know, with training and development. 
um, which put me in my last real job, as I say, 25 years ago at Barclays uh, Global Investors, as it was known then, um, as Director of Training and Development. I then spent about 10 years as a management consultant based in the Bay Area, especially in Silicon Valley. So it was so exciting to be in the early 90s, this was like 1996, to be in that stage of growth that was just so much acceleration and it was just intoxicating. I'd love to work with all kinds of different companies all on the human side of business and did that work for about 10 years with a lot of joy until I found so many people, sometimes the clients who hired me to retain their employees would pull me aside and say, how did you do it? How did you quit your job to start a business? And that's what really germinated the idea for my blog, Escape from Cubicle Nation, that I started in 2005. It turned into my first book, as you mentioned, and really this last 15 years of kind of a magical mystery tour of being somebody who helps to, you know, in many cases, spark take ideas from just conception into the real world of really helping people to launch early stage businesses. And then especially in the later years to really focus on more helping people to scale, especially people who have big ideas, big IP, people like Susan Cain, um, who wrote the book Quiet, um, working with her to launch the Quiet Revolution. And that's kind of a passion area to, to see that expand. This last chapter that I write about a lot in The Widest Net is about five years ago, my husband, who's a Navajo um, business owner, we noticed that there was just zero representation of Native American business experts within our broader community. And actually, I did a 23 city tour in 2015 as early stage research for this book. And I actually I asked the question in each of the 23 cities, uh, you know, among them, New York, Chicago, Atlanta, you know, San Francisco, how many people had ever seen a Native American business expert presenting as a business expert at a conference? Out of 23 cities, seven people had, and four of them were in Vancouver, Canada. So we really recognized that there was a huge gap, not in the fact that leaders existed within that community, but that there wasn't visibility and there weren't the opportunities that were happening for the connection. So that's really where we started is simply to, to support our mission here, which is to support the leadership that exists, but is rarely visible in black, indigenous, Latinx, Asian, you know, et cetera, et cetera communities that are um, often underrepresented. I love that arc so much. And there's so many things there to unpack, quite frankly. Um, you know, on one hand, you've had amazing corporate experience working in Silicon Valley. Hmm. On the other hand, you've helped uh, small entrepreneurs, people who are just starting in their business across their journeys. On the other hand, you're helping folks from the grassroots level. Um, and then you've got this amazing, um, you know, sort of, I, I want to say tapestry of experience working with hmm. diverse entrepreneurs, creators, and your wonderful husband, Daryl. Um, it's fantastic. And, and, and um, I, I would love to double click into that a little bit more, because to me, that is like you're standing at the intersection of sort of uh, technology, the human side of technology, making sure we've got fair representation in business for a lot of these folks. Um, you know, as we as we kind of look at your journey and where it's headed, especially with widest net, right? Um, where where do you think your idea for the widest net start with? Like, was it your inter these intersections of hmm. sort of human side of technology or working in Silicon Valley or working with really diverse creative people or entrepreneurs? Um, because there are so many data points for you to choose from. It's almost like it's like you got you, the world's your oyster. And so where are you drawing from from the widest net? Give us a little yeah. bit of the backstory. Well, this, as I said, they're, they're one of the reasons why I anchored in my early college uh, study was that, believe it or not, the framework that I learned when I was 18 uh, was really something that led such a such value in these different kinds of work environments. The general framework for how you look at systems thinking, how you look at diff different intersecting parts, um, can apply to community economic development in you know, Mexico or Colombia, where I was living and studying. It applies to Mesa, Arizona, as I'm here right now, like working very in a very integrated way 
with our community economic development that's happening with city government and Arizona State University and nonprofit partners. It also worked very effectively to look at it through the lens of organizations and how like systems and organizations work together. So there's something about my own body of work that really evolved using a model, which is so funny, isn't it? I really had no idea how I had chosen actually the perfect you know, career where I was able to apply it in different ways, according to places where I really felt like I had the most interest and I could be providing the most value. The fundamental thing, I always say, you know, I'm really an author practitioner. Some people, a lot of my peers and colleagues are amazing at thinking up some cool metaphor and a really interesting idea and then just doing some research for it to make sure it could be academically valid and writing a book about it, sometimes many books in a row. Either as a blessing or a curse, I really write about what I am actually working on with my clients. It is the way that I contextualize my work. And I feel like one of my gifts is being able sometimes to see what the future needs before the present is quite ready. If I, if I look at what it is that I saw happening within Escape from Cubicle Nation, I was really seeing this whole trend based on the work I had done with individuals of more and more people going freelance and side hustles and so forth a little bit before it was such a popular thing to talk about, you know, so there's been for each book. It's a way to really contextualize the work that I'm doing with clients and for the widest net. One of the things that became very clear is that the way often that we're talking about business that we're teaching about business and running businesses is through this empire model. We actually use words like empire. I want to build my empire. I want to crush the competition. I, I, you know, I need to be positioning myself as the sole expert within my space and through my sales process need to convince my prospects that I am the only person they're ever going to need to solve their problems. I don't know about you, <laughs> but as much as I feel good about my work with my clients, I never am able to fulfill the role of intellectual property attorney, of CPA, of branding positioning experts, all of this other ecosystem of experts that I need to collaborate with in order to help my client actually reach their goals. So part of what I was noticing as a practitioner is that a lot of my clients were first just getting overwhelmed and frustrated, like not really relating to that empire metaphor of like saying like, I don't wanna put the whole spotlight on me. I want it to be in my body of work. And I think, which is more the truthful way about how work happens, is we really do often work in a deeper ecosystem with a number of peers and partners. The wonderful thing that I've discovered through lots of research for this book and practice with my clients is that when you look at the world strategically that way of centering your ideal customer in the center of their ecosystem and find out the very best partners that are also aligned to help solve their problem, there's no better way to understand like where you should speak and which events you should be at. There, it's totally clear what kind of sponsors would be the perfectly you know, aligned people with you. And it's extremely clear to understand who are your very best referral partners. So there's just a very specific path that I found that is more strategic around building a business. But I think aligned with my own mission and values, it's also more aligned with the kind of culture that I like to be with. I'm not really fond of empires. Remember that whole not really liking the top down crushing of people underneath. And so I find this model is one that is much more resonant with people who are working in coalition, who like to work, you know, with referral partners. And I find for for many of my clients of color that it can just resonate more with often culturally the way in which they see the world, which is really with extended circles as opposed to just individuals. Uh, I love that. There's so many things there that we should unpack. One thing, one of the things that stood out for me is author practitioner. And that to me is so fundamental and at the same time, so rare in the business world. Like you, I mean, you could go on and look at experts online who <laughs> may be giving quote unquote advice, but are they really practicing their craft? And and to me, that's such huge. I mean, Pam, thank you for doing that because mm. that is such a refreshing uh, change. And that's such a refreshing view of the world, which is 
hey, I am doing this on a daily basis in my business. I'm helping others do this. And here are the things you should do. I mean, that approach is phenomenal. So thank you for doing that. It's very hard to do that. Yes. I'm sure, you're, I'm sure you've got scars on your back saying, oh, you know, I did this. Here are the things I did really well. Here are the things I didn't do well. So I mean, that by itself to me is so, so important and strong. And the other part, which also sort of excited me in this conversation is, is, is this whole thing about not empire building. Mm. And, and, and hey, you don't need to be, you, you don't need to create the next Facebook. You don't need mm. to create the next Amazon, but you need to have a great business which creates value for people in your community, other companies, um, and et cetera, et cetera. So to me, those, those topics are super interesting. So tell me a little bit more as you, as you think about not empire building and you put customers, you, you mentioned, I want to see customers and I want to see their entire ecosystem. Mm. Um, that to me is super interesting. So are, what can you share with us that is about identifying your customer like how do I how should I think about my customer if I'm a guy or a gal who's who is you know a part you know I'm running a company Mm -hmm. and I'm trying to serve a customer a set of customers how should I view them what should I know about them how do I go about identifying those customers and then maybe if I do a good job maybe I can identify the rest of the ecosystem, then I can kind of do more with it. That's right. How do I do do that? Yeah. So there's a very specific approach that I took in the book, and some of it, no surprise, was in collaboration (laughs) with one of my dear friends, um, Susan Beyer, who's an audience segmentation researcher and specialist. And part of what I discovered in doing this work with people, we talk a lot about the mission of a business. People in corporate probably roll their eyes because sometimes you have days long offsites in order to decide yeah, something that sometimes- to, That's right, <laughs> let's go to Ritz Carlton, Half Moon <laughs> right. Bay, Let's do a two-day offsite to figure out our mission statement. Exactly. That's right. There could be, and there's the Dilbert mission statement generator. There's much reason why people have to be a little bit, you know, um, suspect. But when you really think about it, um, and I call this your root mission, um, when you, when you're creating the foundation for your business, and when you're really thinking about what your business is actually doing, it has to be grounded in a deeper understanding about what is that core problem or challenge or what is that aspiration that you are really driving towards. So for me, I know I'm very driven by, I'm passionate about the small business sector because I know that so much economic acceleration can happen. I know that it's accessible to so many more people across every spectrum that you can think of than you can have maybe for a a typical career field that would require lots of years of university or right special connections to powerful people. So I'm passionate about that mission of really strengthening the small business sector across the US and really around the world. That mission is quite large for me to be accomplishing specifically, right? So within that mission is where you begin to look at actually the definition of your audience segment, which springs from that root mission. And it's really saying of that bigger problem and challenge, right? Of maybe entrepreneurs who are struggling to, you know, meet cash flow and get new customers and all these things. Where, how can I define my audience based on a core problem or challenge that I know I can really help them solve? And who might be others then that are on the same mission with me that are solving other parts of the problem? That one of the examples that I used in the book is in Intuit. If we take just Intuit, you know, folks know the company um, as somebody who makes software. They just acquired MailChimp, right? So now they'll be offering more email marketing. Mm-hmm. But their mission is to power prosperity. And when you look at that, like what are the things that are required in order for them to fully reach their mission? Their, their customers need to have, you know, um, money awareness. They need to fix their money mindset. They need bank accounts. They need retirement accounts. They <clears throat> may need, you know, um, software in order to help them manage their business and organize their receipts in their business. They might need financial coaches to help people set up specific structures in order to understand their financial statements. 
even with that initial brainstorm, as you look at that, we have begun to define and outline the ecosystem of which Intuit plays one particular role. There also are going to be natural alliances with CPAs, with life coaches that focus on money, with thought leaders and experts that write books on that topic. And so when you look at a typical Intuit customer, as they're excited by this mission of powering prosperity, they're probably looking other places besides just where they might get their subscription for their accounting software in order to solve this deeper problem, right, of really becoming truly prosperous in their business. So it really is, you can see where typically when we describe our audience or our customers in terms of an avatar, so they're between the age of 25 and 35, they drive a Volvo, they live in New Jersey, that doesn't tell you anything at all about what other kinds of partners might be connected and actually what the business is that you're involved in, right? Like what is your particular focus in your business? So it's why it's so important to always first describe your ideal client in terms of specific problem or challenge they have or aspiration. And then where it's relevant, of course, you can add demographic characteristics if that's important to you. If you want to maybe narrow down your segment to a particular vertical industry or, a, you know, you want to work with only women or whatever that demographic slice would be. I love it. Um, and, and, and thank you for sharing that. Yes, persona is important, but there's so much more to understanding the customer. Demographics is only a part of that. And I love your examples of Intuit and others where you're looking at sort of what problems are there to solve? What are the various types of problems uh, that I should look at? And, and those to me are fantastic sort of ideas to build upon. And one of the ideas that you build upon this in the book is this concept of watering holes. Now, mm -hmm. let's say I know my customer, I know sort of the problem domains or the different problems that the my cust ideal customer is, you know, looking at or mm -hmm. trying to solve or, you know, is challenged with. What What is this concept of watering holes? Because to me, when I first read about it, it was like, oh my God, I, I was totally missing this aspect. And this could be leveraged for marketing, for business development, for identifying your customers, creating more value, so many other things. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I'm super excited about this. Tell me, tell us more about the watering holes concept. Yes. So I was talking earlier about how there is a natural ecosystem around your ideal customer, which are basically places in person or online where they're looking for information to, or tools or resources to solve their problem. I have in my ecosystem wheel like nine different segments of that ecosystem and they're everything from service providers to companies that provide products to media hubs so there are all these different segments of the ecosystem wheel um, and within those segments you have watering holes so a watering hole could be a podcast where you know that somebody very kind like you <laughs> has spent a lot of years dedicated to building up an audience around a topic that you and I both share a great passion for, right? Helping people to really build the skills that they need to do work they love, that makes an impact in the world. And because you've taken this time to build up this watering hole of your podcast, when I can identify you as somebody who first I had the good sense to become friends with a long time ago, <laughs> but secondly, who has this, this, this avenue, then when I'm sharing my message for the first time, there could be some people who know both of us, right? But many people, it could be the first time that I'm ever connecting with them. Much like when you come out to Arizona and you visit and maybe you come into the watering hole here, right? Of a place we have as a learning lab, it would be the first time that all this vast community here can learn about you and learn about what it is that you have to offer. So this idea of watering holes is that there are places in person and online where great people have already taken the time to gather an audience. And when you know that and you're able to evaluate that very strategically from a marketing lens, and this is as applicable for large companies as it is for a, a business owner that's just starting on their journey. I always say, if you are just kind of looking at the internet and generally sharing information and shouting out there, you know, to people like, hey, here I am, come buy my stuff. Um, sometimes that works a little bit, 
But if you were to know precisely when you define your ideal client and you really know the kind of problem or challenge that they have, and you know the very best influencers that this customer respects so much so that if you happen to be on their podcast or if they produce an event and you're on their stage, that that would immediately create the sense of connection. If you know of the products that this customer uses to solve their problem, so that just like I did yesterday, I was speaking with GoDaddy, I was speaking at their customer conference, and where I have this partnership, where they have this huge customer base of their their customers who are all small business owners, it's so advantageous for me to be connecting with just the right ecosystem partners in the best watering holes. So it's a it's a quicker way that you can um, get more exposure for your brand, but more fundamentally, when we think about it from the customer journeys perspective, you become more a curator of the very best tools that somebody needs to know. And I always consider it, you know, something that makes me smile when, you know, a customer might say, oh, you know, God, thank goodness, you know, the best people. I love it when you like introduce that podcast to me because it's just so valuable and I love it. And often I'm sitting back smiling and snickering a little bit because I'm like, I know I spend my life looking out in the ecosystem that surrounds my clients, trying to find the very best people that are doing great work, that are aligned with my mission and values that will help my customers move forward another step. And that I think is I, certainly in the software world, in the software as a service world, you know, for so many SaaS companies, I feel like they've been saying it forever. It's all about the ecosystems. They've been talking about it for so long. For some reason, it hasn't really moved over to the way that us entrepreneurs look at it. And I, I think that's the big opportunity. And that's a big reason why I wrote the book. Yeah. I, and I, you know, that's super intriguing that those watering holes exist, those have been developed by so many folks over their years. In those watering holes, they've collected people around them that are passionate about a particular topic. Um, and and in, in my mind, what you just what you just kind of shown a light on a little bit is sort of all of you you kind of become a curator of all of these yeah. watering holes and you have this special lens on this. And for Pam Slim, the lens is empowering small businesses and helping them scale up their businesses. And through that lens, you've identified watering holes. And for someone else who's like a great CPA or maybe a, a lawyer or some other type of business, they would be able to identify those watering holes through their special um, you know, lens, i.e. they should be able to curate that and then go to those watering holes and create value for those folks. Yes. Um, and th that to me is super compelling. And I would love to apply that a little bit in terms of what we do as well. Um, you know, one of the things that kind of becomes the next step after that, Pam, is mm -hmm. um, let's say I'm, I'm going to those watering holes. I'm creating value for those folks. Now I'm starting to get some leads. How can I sort of create compelling offers? And, and mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the phrases you use in the book is, create compelling offers that your customers can't refuse. It's like, is this like the godfather? <laughs> I'll give an offer, can't refuse. But, but I thought that was super smart because um, the way you phrase that and you frame that up was create offers that your, your customers can't refuse. It will be super hard to refuse that. So um, the next question obviously is, well, that sounds great, but how do I, how do I go about doing that? How can I, create compelling offers for customers? Um, we'll always do the caveat, like with consent, right? <laughs> we never, we never want to like force anything on anybody, but really this, the, the approach when you become a student of really understanding the journey that your customer is on, I think each of us, no matter what it is that we sell, whether it be a product or a service is taking our customers on a transformational journey. So they start in a, in a place where they might feel frustrated, you know, their house is disorganized, they're always losing their chargers, you know, like everything is kind of a mess. And maybe the transformational journey you're helping them to make is to have this totally smart home where they can just snap their fingers and wink twice and all of their, you know, appliances work. Um, but in order for them to do that, you really have to be the student of understanding what are those different steps they need to take 
And then what are particular barriers that get in their way? Because in the bigger arc of this transformation that they're trying to make, sometimes you do have everything within your company in order to like solve all of those problems. Other times it can be that you just need to understand, you know, that maybe they're, they, they want to make the transformation, but they're, they're not really motivated. And so maybe they need like a really good, like motivational habit coach. They need to have James Clear come in, right. And like do a, do a great talk to them about atomic habits to like get them in the mindset, you know, in order to get ready to make the change. That's part of your intelligence when you understand the journey that they're on means that when you come to designing an offer, it's specifically designed in order just to like make it as easy as possible for them to make the journey or in some cases to take a particular step in the journey. So when we look at that earlier example of Intuit, right, overall, everybody in the ecosystem around finances is trying to power prosperity, trying to get more money in the hands of more people. But in particular stages of the journey, you want to make sure that your software, your accounting software is as effective as possible, it's as smooth as possible, and you're, you're introducing it to people in a way in which they're, it absolutely is resonating, right, with what it is that they want and need. So often what I see, and I, I imagine you probably see it too in your day-to-day -day work, is people create offers completely void of the context of their customer. They're like, I'm going to start a app and a, you know, mastermind program that meets 15 times a year in, you know, a different city every, you know, every month or something like that. Although 15 times a year in 12 months, the math doesn't add up, but you know, I'm a liberal arts major. <laughs> so when you, when you create an offering that's devoid of an actual customer experience, that's where you start to get this mismatches where somebody's like, well, yeah, that sounds really cool, but we can't travel now, you know, due to lockdowns or I, I'm, I have a family and I can't be leaving all the time, you know, even though it sounds like a great idea. That's the part I find where you really have a disconnect. So what makes it so resonant, what makes it feel so much in alignment. And again, for me, it's always a clue that I'm on the right track where somebody would say, oh my gosh, like, I just felt like I, I breathed a sigh of relief when I, you know, reached the page to, you know, do coaching with you or do this particular program because it, I feel like you were in my head and you were just describing the specific things that I was struggling with. And this is like, this works, this format works, this is exactly what I was looking for. That is by design because you're really designing in the context of understanding the bigger transformational change. Yeah, I love that. And, and, and I've heard this from a lot of a lot of folks, which is they, they pick up a great book, like, for example, Escape from Cubicle Nation, uh, and they would say, oh, my God, this book is speaking to me. This yeah. is the book that I've always wanted all my life. And partly is because, Pam, you've done the research, you've put in the time to understand their journey, where they are from a mindset standpoint, where they are today and where they would like to be in the future. And how can, for example, this particular book help them take the next step, which is yeah. first you got to escape from the cubicle nation, which, which is awesome. Um, I love that. And, and so, so creating that compelling offer that takes them to the next step in their journey. And that makes, that makes a ton of sense. And I can see how putting in the work, doing the research, understanding the context, would help them do that. Yeah. Now, the hard part for a lot of people, and mm -hmm. I've struggled with this in the past personally, which is how do you make the sale? Mm. And which is, which in over a period of time, I've gotten over it. And now um, I used to have this, these images in my mind, like of a sleazy salesperson mm -hmm. or used car salesperson that would show up and try to, you know, jam a product into the customer's hands and say, you got to buy this. Mm. We've got a special going on right now, but, but it's not that. And, and, and wh why is it that people find it so hard to make sales? They've done all the great work. They've identified <laughs> customers. They've created an offer. They are in their watering holes, but now it's like they got to close. Right. And there are some, maybe people have preconceived notions about making sales. So hmm. how, how, can, how can we help them? How, what, what do they need to do to become better at sales without 
letting their own sort of earlier beliefs come in the way. Yeah. This is where I think having a, a bigger context um, is so important because how you think about selling is is drives so much of the feelings that you have about doing it. And it's why it goes all the way back to the original root mission, right? When you really know that you're making a choice in your business to be solving a problem that you are personally passionate about, that you know has impact and meaning for people that you care about, it sure can feel a whole lot easier to have some enthusiasm of wanting to um, take action in order to make that change happen. And that always is at the root of what keeps you going. Sales is hard. It is difficult to have the conversation sometimes, but that's the part that can keep you really centered is realizing why are you doing this in the first place? When you are looking more at building connections, at building relationships and having more what I call a relational as opposed to transactional approach to business, right? You're not looking at people as numbers. You're not, you know, I always just cringe when I might see somebody, you know, come off stage and they immediately they're like, yes, you know, I closed a whole bunch of people, you know, in that audience on my offer. Some people share it on social media and I'm thinking, how terrible would that be to be in the audience and not feel like this person was here to give me valuable information, but rather to like close me, right? If you're demonstrating all the way through your connections with your customers, that you are passionate about helping them solve their problems, you build relationships slowly, build trust equity, and then you design something that you feel really good about that you know is going to help them achieve their aspirations and solve their problems. And in the context, of value in business, right? In the context of helping them to save money or make money or reduce their risk or you know save time, all of these elements that can come from a sales framework. Um, that when you know that, then it's more about having an approach where you recognize you've made a connection, they've you know expressed interest, and then you need to make it easy for them to watch through and walk through a natural process where they can really understand exactly what it is that they are um, you know, looking to do. They can understand what you have to offer. And a lot of my sales uh, training and models come from an early client. I had Skip Miller um, from M3 Learning that totally revolutionized the way that I thought about selling because he really in, in his books and his work talks about, you know, people buy in a process, right? Like you buy in a process when you're thinking about buying a car, like you think about it, you look on the internet, you do some test drives, you check with your husband or wife, you know, to make sure it's okay to spend the money. And then you might finally make a decision, right? And make the purchase. All of his methodology is really based on that, just matching the sales process with what's naturally going on in the buying process. So that for me was revolutionary as a young younger consultant when I was working with him is it just totally demystified the fact that I was not trying to force something on anybody. I was organizing my sales process so that for somebody who showed up and said, yes, I, you know, am interested in, you know, creating a certification and licensing program that I could say, great, tell me more about what you're trying to accomplish, right? Here's what my approach is. And at each step in the way where I could be organized with my materials, I could be organized to know what the next step was to then eventually make, you know, to ask for a decision. And Skip would always say, yeses are great, noes are great, maybes will kill you, right? All you're trying to do is to get people to make a decision in their full sovereignty because for both of your time and energy, it doesn't make sense. If you're not asking, if you kind of just send out a proposal and hope somebody's going to make a decision, both of you want to get to a place where you've really thought through what you want to do. So that, that approach really, really changed my life. I, I mentioned Skip's work um, in the book. And I think it's this combination of being clear on the mindset. The reason you're selling what you're selling is so that you can contribute to the mission that you're very passionate about. The more business owners that feel strong, capable, that grow their business, that contribute to the economy, that hire other people, that create a more equitable future, the better the world's going to be, you know, for our kids. And so that's what, what can really keep you going, you know, on that mission. And so you have to have that mindset, you have to understand the process, and then you have to have your tools organized so that it won't take you three days to like create a proposal on Microsoft Word every time you need to put together a corporate proposal. <laughs> have your template done, make it easy, have all of your emails set up, and then it becomes more something that's a joy to execute. The, the 
having the mindset and making sure that you're clear about your root mission because that is going to fuel all of your execution, especially in sales, and then understanding the buyer buying process. Yeah. Not just your selling process. It's huge. And I mean, anybody listening right now would be so amped up about selling without being or be, without feeling the need to be this salesy person. And you don't need to be a salesy person to sell. You just need, you're helping that other person take the next step, helping them in their buying cycle. That's huge. And, you know, Pam, we've talked about my favorite parts of the book. Mm. And now maybe it's time to turn the tables a little bit because mm. I would like to ask you about your favorites. Mm. So this is a game we play with every guest. And the idea is we want to, want to know a little bit more about our guest. And although you're no stranger to me, Pam, you might be a little bit new for some of our audience. So let me, are you ready for the favorites game? I am absolutely ready. <laughs> awesome. Um, Pam, what is your favorite app? You're gonna laugh, but it is TikTok. <laughs> I am prohibited from posting by my soon to be 14 year old. I have more fun on TikTok. I laugh hysterically. I think it's such an amazing app for creating content. I'm fascinated by the range of creators and I probably spend more time than I should um, looking at TikTok videos and texting them to my friends. I love it. Wait. <laughs> Are you on TikTok, Pam? Or should I, be on I am. Again, I'm sort of working my way into permission for my daughter to allow me to post. Um, but I, I love it. And I, I do want to create more content, especially here at the Learning Lab, especially where I can get some younger creators. It's amazing. My daughter can create an amazing interactive video in like three minutes or something like that. It would take me a lot longer, but I, I think it's a great medium and I do want to create content, but not maybe like dancing to 90s tunes. <laughs> Although I would like to see that. <laughs> I'm sure you would. Awesome. Um, next one, what is your favorite book? My favorite book is uh, If You Want to Write, a book about art, independence, and spirit by Brenda Uland. U-E-L-A-N-D. It was actually recommended by my friend Guy Kawasaki, as some know as the from Apple or his current role at, as evangelist at Canva. And this is a book that was written, I think, in the 1930s by a writing teacher. It is absolutely just a treasure. The writing is beautiful, but a lot of the writing is about writing and also the, the creative process. She also, I think, was really a woman that was just actively encouraging women to be, you know, equal and free through creative expression. And it's just a, a wonder of a book. So I highly recommend it for anybody who, who writes, but even for people who just consider themselves to be creative people. Thank you for sharing that, Pam. This is, this is huge. I, I was not aware of this book. Now I am, and I am going to grab that for sure. Thank you for sharing. Um, let's go to the next one. This is about, is, do you have a favorite quote that, that you like or you share with others or that you aspire towards? I have a lot of favorites. I'm gonna choose one right from the introduction of the book, which is just because someone stumbles and loses their path doesn't mean they're lost forever. And this is Charles Xavier from X-Men. <laughs> so um, I, in my work uh, that I've done in so many different contexts throughout the years, find that healing, redemption, um, grace are such a critical part of having a really interesting and joyful life. So many of my clients, when I first start to meet with them, have a very fixed view about, you know, they want to start a business and they're either going to succeed or they're going to fail, or they're just terrified and nervous about what it is that somebody thinks. Or in some cases, they might have had certain life experiences or made certain choices that put them in a really bad place. And I just fundamentally believe that we are capable of transformation, that we are all capable and beloved, right, in the universal sense of redemption, that we're 
it's never, ever, ever too late in order to, you know, have a better, happier, healthier life. And to me, that's the underpinning of just about everything that I do in my work. You know, if you have a really crappy day, you can wake up tomorrow and just know that you can start afresh. And I just like to keep that principle alive for me. It just adds, I think, a lot of lightness and also, I think, keeps me creative. I like that a lot. And thank you for sharing that. It's got so much deep meaning and the fact that we can be anybody and we can actually create a transformation for ourselves at any age, no matter what our backgrounds, no matter the context, no matter the geography, that's huge. And um, I think that's super powerful. And thank you for sharing that, Pam. Mm -hmm. Um, On a different note, do you have a favorite restaurant? I do. I am not sure if it is still there. When I lived in San Francisco, now going on probably 20 years, in the Haight-Ashbury district, there was a restaurant that actually had no name and no sign on the window. It was an older Japanese couple. And so the uh, wife was the waitress and the, the husband was the chef. And he would get extremely fresh fish that he would choose each day himself at the market. And it, I love sushi. It's probably my favorite dish ever. And it was the best sushi I have ever had in my life. Now, I have never been to Japan. So those who have, or maybe from there, I'm, I'm sure that, that there's also wonderful restaurants there. But the, the entire experience was just so special, where you, you kind of had to know that it was there. And there was such a beautiful strong, passionate relationship that you could see that that they had with each other and also just the relationship that the chef had with his craft, which was making sushi. It just was an amazing, amazing place to eat. Oh, that's beautiful. And kind of reminds me of Jira Dreams of Sushi a little bit. And and the fact that the the husband and the wife, they're running this restaurant and yeah. serving the local community. That's that's huge. Um, hopefully they're around and more, more part of them. I know it was 20 years ago, so I would be curious. It's been a little bit since I've been back in San Francisco, but I have to swing by and see. Yes. Hopefully you'll swing by soon and we'll get to see you in person. Um, Pam, you've been a phenomenal guest. Um, as we wrap up here, um, what would be your, what, what would be your favorite advice to give to entrepreneurs? Maybe there are people who are just starting in their journey or maybe they're already in their entrepreneurial journey, what advice would you have for them, especially coming from a small, medium business expert like yourself? Yeah, I have to say, just really in the spirit of the work that that I've done on the latest book, when you are either just beginning and you are looking to, you know, bring your product or service out into the world, or if you have been in business for a while and you're looking to make a pivot. I know a lot of my clients might be, you know, creating a new offering that might be more in the B2B space or something, right? Something that companies could have or vice versa, companies that want to address the consumer market. Before just building up like all of your marketing that's just about you and your individual outreach, do a little bit of analysis to figure out who already is working in this space. If you can identify a couple of watering holes where you can meet one-to-many people who would fit your ideal customer profile. So let's say you're you know, a software developer and you're creating a, uh, an app for coaches and consultants take a little bit of time to look up a local chapter of a, you know, International Coach Federation or, you know, Consultants of America or whatever the association would be. I call it being the weirdo in the room, which is if you're the only software developer that's in this room filled with coaches or consultants, it is such a rich environment for you to immediately have conversations, notice what it is that they're talking about, see what the kind of topics are, and it can just immediately immerse you in the language that they're using to describe what their problems or challenges are. Just as soon as possible where you can make contact you know, with people who are your ideal customers, I say the better. And I always encourage people to you know, do this little testing and trying and experimenting first. Knowing that there is more of a strategic analysis, right, of discovering all the partners, an easy starting place where maybe you already have a client or you know somebody who fits your ideal client profile 
is to look for the, the PB&Js or the peanut butter and jellies. And what that means are partners who are offering a highly complimentary but non-competitive service to you. So, right, you, I, I could look at within my own environment for my clients that I work with, natural PB&J partners for me are intellectual property attorneys. I refer my clients every day because I do so much work of creating new programs and IP protection. CPAs are another very natural partner. When you can identify somebody who's an ideal partner, and even better, if you ask your ideal customer um, who those folks are, set up a 15 or 20 minute conversation purely for the purpose of saying, tell me a little bit more about your business, right? What exactly do you offer? Who's your ideal customer, right? What's, what's your approach to the work? And you can share the same for you. And where there is maybe a little bit more of a natural connection, you could figure out if it makes sense to get to know each other better. Because these partners probably have a full book of business that are your ideal customers. And simply by beginning to look at where you might refer people to each other is a really smart way to get started, you know, as opposed to just shouting out into the internet, hoping somebody will hear you <laughs> and book a consult call. I love that. And those relationships could big bring in reciprocal business for yourself as well as part of those part of those relationships. It, it almost always goes both ways, right? Because where it's a true PB&J partner, your customer needs both of you in order to completely solve their problem. So it's just, it's such a handy thing. And I see it every day in my business. I have so many wonderful ecosystem partners that I refer my customers to and that they refer clients to me. Love it, Pam. Uh, don't be afraid to be the weirdo in the room and find your PB&J partnership. <laughs> there you go. Amazing advice. Pam, thank you so much for being a guest on the Career Nation show. Um, you know, we, we have so many entrepreneurs, SMB leaders in, in our community here mm -hmm. that, would be, that would love to hear from you and they'll really find this valuable. And friends, The Widest Net is coming out November and it will be published by McGraw-Hill. So please, please book a copy and get a few copies for your friends as well. Pamela, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.